0: So I'm betting that a fair number of people in this room would describe themselves as progressive Christians, especially if we were holding that in opposition to evangelical Christian or orthodox Christian or Roman Catholic. Of course, we have other identifiers as well. I'm a woman. Perhaps you are male or non-binary or gender fluid, a parent a child, a sister, a brother, an educator, a business person, a stay-at-home parent, a Democrat, a Republican, an activist, or a peacemaker. We define ourselves, at least in part, because it helps us know how to show up in the world. Or to say it another way, we know ourselves in relationships by the communities in which we participate. I don't know about you, but it took me a minute to find my people in high school and in college, to find those people who really understood me, who freed me to be myself without having to perform some other version of me. There's a deep liberation in finding your people. I don't want to minimize the gift of that. It's important to know how you fit and where you fit. That's real. Up until this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus has spent his ministry working with and for his own community, the Jewish community. His last big encounter is with Nicodemus, a great teacher of renown. Now though, he's gotten himself into trouble And he has to flee north, away from the Pharisees, another reform movement inside his community. In order to get north to the Galilee, Jesus has to go through Samaritan lands. While Jews and Samaritans have lots in common, including a shared sacred text, they were estranged. Think Hatfields and McCoys. Jesus' people, the Jews claimed the entire Hebrew Bible, from Genesis to the prophets. The Samaritans only claimed the first five books of the Bible. But the big disagreement, the thing that really estranged the two communities, was over this question of where one should worship. Jews worshiped at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans, taking their authority from a passage in Deuteronomy, worship on Mount Gerizim. About 100 years before Jesus is born, the Jews destroyed the Samaritan's temple. The two groups became bitter rivals and encounters between them were often violent. Think of the story of the Good Samaritan. So there were safer routes that Jesus could have taken He could have gone further to the east or further to the west to avoid Samaritan population centers. He could have gone another way, but he chose the difficult path. And it led him, at the hottest part of the day, to a common well in Samaria. And again, to be clear, Jesus had options. He was still a high status Jewish teacher. At the very least, his identity as a man gave him power. He could have waited until his disciples came back to ask them to help him get a drink from the well. If he absolutely could not wait that long, he could have turned to a Samaritan man and asked for help getting water. Instead, he approaches the one person that he absolutely should not talk to, a woman, a stranger, an enemy, and he asks her for a drink. The Samaritan woman, probably a little creeped out by this approach, says, who are you to be asking me for a drink? If you only understood, you'd be asking me for a drink. It's such a strange exchange. Jesus first asking for help to get water and then saying, no, I'm going to give you water. And there's a lot of funny wordplay here in the Greek. The thing that we translate as living water Actually, in the Greek, just also means running water or like flowing water. So while we read the Bible and we have this sort of mystical understanding of this living water, the woman at the well probably just thought he was asking for, for water from the spring. Two people, and yet somehow in this encounter, she intuits that Jesus is asking her something deeper than just for a cup of water. These two people who have nothing to do with one another, who should not be able to meet and talk and communicate somehow, engage in a relationship that's something deeper over a cup of water. And then, just like when it seems that Jesus is finally getting somewhere with her, he changes tactics completely. He tells the Samaritan woman to go get your husband. I don't have a husband, she says. You don't, you've had five husbands and the one you're living with now isn't your husband. Now, a lot of people have gotten to this point in the conversation and they assume that Jesus is speaking to her with moral condemnation. He's not. There's a lot of reasons that women in this time would have had up to five husbands and Jesus doesn't seem phased in any way by her having five husbands. What he's doing here is showing off, proving to her that he knows about her life, that he has inside information. The Samaritan woman is taken aback as we all would be. Maybe he's psychic. She's trying to figure out who this stranger is And like the disciples who are constantly asking this question throughout the gospels, now she's asking the central question, who is this Jesus? So she draws upon her only real frame of reference, ah, you're a prophet. With this new label, the stakes are raised. I'm not sure what the appropriate thing for a Samaritan woman to do when she meets a Jewish prophet is. I think Middle Eastern customs probably fell a little short on describing that. But I do know that she is very brave because she pushes him deeper. Remember that Samaritans and Jews have been fighting about where to worship for a very long time and she raises this major issue. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you people claim that we should worship in Jerusalem. What do you have to say about that? Jesus's answer is all shade. It's all subtext. Soon, we will worship God without reference to a place. You Samaritans worship a God that you don't understand. We Jews worship a God that we do understand. And salvation is coming through the Jewish line. Yet the hour is coming, is already here, when real worshipers will worship Abba, God in truth and spirit. I know about the Messiah, who will come and tell us everything. Jesus replied, I who speak to you am the Messiah. This whole part of this exchange is dripping with irony. Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman who seems to be far more insightful than his own disciples. They've barely begun to know each other. And yet she has already identified him as something more, something special, a teacher, a prophet. So telling her that she doesn't know who God is, is kind of rich. (laughs) And at the exact same time, she says, the Jews, they understand who God is. And yet, here he is on the run from the Jews who do not understand what he is doing or who he is in the world. Jesus is blowing up the categories. He's not following etiquette. He's bypassing tradition. He's absolutely turning the tables on who gets to describe themselves as righteous and who has insight. All of those categories that define us, Jews, Samaritans, man, woman, they collapse when God shows up. Or at least those boundaries begin to blur away in the face and in the presence of the holy other. I started today by asking or suggesting that many of us might consider ourselves progressive Christians. That identity is important to me. It's important to me in part because I'm often trying to distinguish myself from other forms of Christianity that I'm not always as proud of. I've thought about the limits of that a lot lately, primarily in response to the Asbury revival. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? No? Okay. Um, in February, there was a sort of spirit of evangelical fervor that swept through Asbury University, which is a Methodist institution. And students stayed after a chapel service to continue in prayer and worship and praise. And then they stayed in prayer for like two, over two weeks. And people came from all across the country to come and continue to worship with these students. And I promise you that the pastor types in the room know all about this because it's been everywhere in, in many Christian circles. So there were a lot of bold declarations about what was going on in the Asbury revival. Some Christian media was calling it America's Great Third Awakening, Great Awakening. On Twitter there were, as there always are, many hot takes. Among the progressive set, there was the common complaint that this couldn't possibly be a revival. Not until these people show up and start acting for social justice. On the more theologically conservative end, there was a lot of proclaiming about how God was finally showing up and renewing the American spirit. Was it a revival? I don't know. In part, I don't know because I wasn't there. I honestly didn't have any interest in being there. That style of worship doesn't do it for me. And frankly, very, very long chapel services don't do it for me either. I get bored. I find myself renewed in study and common action and quiet. That's where I get renewal. And all of that is just a way of saying that those aren't my people. And so I probably wouldn't go. But also, I don't know if it's a revival because I'm trying really hard to learn the lessons of the Samaritan woman. That God can show up even in places that I am convinced hold nothing for me. And I'm aware because of the identities that I do hold that sometimes I don't always see other people and other things clearly. Most of us believe, I think, that we are fair to other people, that we see the world clearly as it is, but that's never the case. My social scientist friends and colleagues have a term for this. They call it in-group bias. We tend to prefer, to think better of, to believe in the moral superiority of our own in-groups. Sometimes we consciously think those thoughts and sometimes they filter in through our subconscious in the form of racism and classism and sexism and all sorts of other evils. And this sort of in-group bias has very real world implications. You could think about the judge who extends sent- who sentences more fairly people whose identities match their own in groups, or the loan officers who offer more favorable terms to people who look or act like themselves. We'd like to think that we see the world clearly, but social science tells us differently, and Jesus tells us differently. We are separated by our communities and our identities, and that has the potential to keep us from seeing what God is doing in the world. So Jesus crosses the divide, chooses to take the difficult path, and walks right up to a woman with whom he has no business to be speaking. And she must have been a profoundly spiritually gifted woman because she sees him, she understands him, and receives his self-revelation. Jesus draws her into a relationship that extends community. She, who was once an enemy, is now a disciple. And it doesn't stop there because once that estrangement has been overcome, the circle widens and widens, She's a witness, and in the end, many come to believe. Not because of the Jewish men who comfortably traveled with him, but because she pointed the way for others to see. The wrong person at the right time who changes history. Sometimes I like to think about the lengths to which God will go to find us. God will show up, crossing the street to get into our path. She'll use our friends and she'll also use our enemies. He will come to us as a baby in a manger. God will even die to reveal eternal life. The definitional lines that we give ourselves that we even need in this life, they don't contain God. And it's a reminder that we really aren't limited by them either. We are called as witnesses, overcoming that divide, building community with everyone who will listen as we speak the truth of Christ. I keep returning to that image of living water. As I mentioned earlier, in the Greek, it's punny. It's both spring water and living water and flowing water. And I love those double meanings. What could be more mundane than flowing water? What could be more life-giving and essential than running water? And what seeks its own path, carving through stone, dripping through cracks, creating rivulets? Like the Holy Spirit going wherever she wills, may each of us, enlivened by living water, changing us, shaping our identities, overcoming estrangement, and, of course, quenching our thirst. Thanks be to God. Amen.